You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Nikita. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. Uh, this is uh, the Non-Zero Podcast. I also publish a Non-Zero newsletter. You're Nikita Petrov. Uh, familiar to regular, both, I guess, newsletter readers and our podcast listeners. You, you used to do a lot of work for Non-Zero. Now you're focusing on other things like putting out your newsletter, Psychopolitica. Um, also working for The Glenn Show. Uh, which we kind of helped launch uh, you, you and I at least the, at least the, the the kind of the the the, the current version of it. Um, yeah, well, you hosted the show for well, not hosted, but your platform hosted the show. The, the for show the first per 10 se, years. yeah, I, I kind of launched many many years ago, but but kind of uh, the 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 current version of it, uh, you were instrumental in launching. Um, anyway, it's doing very well. Uh, you're doing well relative to how you were doing not so long ago, because not so long ago, you were in Russia hoping you'd be able to get out. This was after Putin ordered demobilization. I want, I want to get into all this. Um, in fact, I think I'll leave people on the edge of their seats as to whether you did get out. <laughs> they won't know. They have to listen for three more minutes to find that out. First, uh, I want to say we're doing a couple of things. You and I are going to have uh, in the coming months, every so often, one of these conversations. Uh, we're going to always talk somewhat about Russia, and that will be related uh, to a kind of a larger purpose that is central to the newsletter and my current mission and the current non-zero mission and so on, which is this uh, cognitive empathy business. Uh, I have this claim that the world would be a much better place if everyone were better at understanding how the world looks from the point of view of other people, not necessarily mm -hmm. sympathizing with them or caring about them even, but just understanding how they view the world. And, and, uh, and in fact, I'm writing a book about that. And, and, and you know, they're, the newsletter is often about that. And uh, Russia is, is just a good test case right now because I think, first of all, I think it's very important for Americans to under try to understand how things are viewed in Russia uh, from Putin's point of view, but from the point of view of various other actors in Russia. So I'm going to try to get you to help us illuminate that um but yeah i don't know if i'm going to be very helpful in that, well i know but... you're always you're always humble about this i'm going to get to that uh the uh your your epistemic humility with regard to this particular question because that's that's an interesting part of the story um we should all be more epistemically humble when it comes to cognitive empathy i should be probably uh but i think especially in a case like this because i think you know most americans uh think of uh Certainly, Putin, if not the Russian people, as an adversary, if not enemy, and when you when you have someone framed that way, that poses uh, particular challenges to exercising cognitive empathy. I think, and and for that matter, if if it's somebody you love, somebody a relative or a close friend, whatever, that poses other challenges. 
and, and, and you know, there, there's there's no such thing in a way as, as an easy case with cognitive empathy. So we're going to be doing this every so often, um, and 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 kind of uh, checking in on the progress of the project, the kind of mm-hmm. newsletter project of of exploring cognitive empathy, trying to help people get better at it if they want, and so on. Uh, and you and I are going to talk about things we could do to make the project better. But I always want to come back and and make contact with this Russia question because I think it is such a good way of thinking about it. Now, uh, do you want to, I promised people we, we would uh, g- give them an update on your plight. You are no longer in Russia. Uh, you're in I am. Armenia. And I think maybe we did another conversation when you were in Armenia, but but you've been back in Russia since that's right that's right i left in march of this year uh and i spent i think about four months it should be uh in armenia and then my and it was always the plan i would would go back to do some things uh i wasn't able to get into the russian consulate here in armenia or not very open (laughs) seems like uh, and I needed to do that. You mean, you mean even in the minimal sense of having a door you can walk through? There is a door. Uh, there's a, a very tired guard at the door who says you need to have appointments, you know, uh-huh. uh, and, and the appointment are only done online. And uh, they're supposed, I think they're supposed to send you a confirmation email in, and I never got the confirmation email. And there's an email that you can write to. And if you do, you get an automatic response saying this email does not exist. And there's a phone number which you can call, but it's always busy. So I just wasn't able to. It's it's like a Kafkaesque situation. There is a building, yeah. but you can't get in. It sounds like maybe uh, help, helping uh, Russians who have recently left Russia is not high on the Russian government's list of priorities right now. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Anyway, the reason I wanted to get there is because I wanted to get married. And so we weren't able to do this here. And so my then fiance and now wife came back to Russia um, to get married and I needed to close my business registration. This was a planned thing, but I ended up coming earlier because my grandmother died and I needed to organize a funeral. And then there's, you know, things needed to be done. So we were in Russia. Our plan was to leave later maybe like a month later than i did um and then yeah i was i was at a cafe talking to a subscriber of my newsletter i started doing this thing where i try to have conversations online or in this case someone was in st petersburg i met with her and in the middle of that conversation my phone started to flare up and it was my wife saying putin saying uh tomorrow they're going to recognize, well, what? They're going to start the referendums in LDR, DNR, Zaporozhye, uh, Kherson, and they're going to last a week. And so we need to get you tickets right now. Uh, for Had we, he already we, announced the partial mobilization at this point? No, no. Mm-hmm. The, so our at the time, our thought was, okay, so they're saying tomorrow they start the referendums. Uh, they're going to last a week. Obviously, they're going to say that everybody voted to be in Russia. And then at that point, the war is on the Russian territory, which means you should announce 
mobilization, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know the, the legal terminology, war times, right, officially, state of war. And uh, our thought was that they are going to do it after the referendums are over. So we felt smart about getting the ticket right away, but we got the ticket for like the last day of the referendums. Uh, and then next morning, uh, mobilization was announced and then we felt dumb because we should have gotten the ticket for an earlier date. Uh, but I did get out uh, and most people got out. And even now, I think most people are able to leave. It's not clear what exactly is going on because some people are just asked a couple of questions and and go forward. Some people are asked a bunch of questions. I am starting to suspect I might be there's might be some kind of a mark on my profile because both when I went back to Russia, I had to go through an extra check. They took my passport away and I waited 40 minutes not knowing what exactly is going on. And then on my way out, they asked me a bunch of questions. Um, then they thought I had all the good answers. You know, I had the return ticket. I uh, bought the ticket. One of the questions is, when did you buy your ticket? And, you know, supposedly if you bought it before mobilization was announced, that's a good thing. My case didn't, uh, didn't put them at ease. And then the lady I was talking to pushed some kind of a button, different lady appeared who was much more stern and ask more questions in a in a different way. Um, now, was she with the like FSB, the successor to the KGB? That's right. We the questions she was the asking. Second, the second lady was, but the first one. The second, right? The first one was just border control. Mm -hmm. The second, we uh, you know, she said you're gonna have to come with me, and on our way to a little booth that is that has the letters FSB on the door, she asked. More questions, um, you know, uh, are you eligible for the draft? What is your category? Do you have a return ticket? Uh, this kind of thing. And then she asked, do you have, so she has, I think by that time she has my passport in her hands. In Russia, you have two passports or rather everybody has the domestic one. Mm -hmm. And then if you want, you can get a foreign passport that allows you to travel outside of the country. Um, so I think she has my foreign passport in her hands and she says, do you have any other documentation on you, such as the domestic passport or your military ID? And by I the said way, I have... were you eligible for the draft? What was, what was the, what was the for, answer to that question? That is also not totally clear. If you listen to Putin, no, because he said that uh, only people with military training are going to be drafted. But uh -huh. we know that's not the case. There definitely are some cases where people in my category which is no military training and like limited uh fit for limited service or something like that health wise um there are definitely people in my category that have gotten their slip of paper but then there's like well how did you answer the question when she said are you eligible for the draft i said i just said what my category is okay I, the, the the letter that signifies what i'm what I am. Um, there is a guy who used to live next door to our family in my hometown who's been dead for eight years. He got uh, a slip of paper. His mother opened the door and uh, it's people from the military office wanting him to go serve and, and fight in the war. And she says he's been dead for eight years. 
Um, so, so it's not like the door, system. They're going door to door, presumably because he didn't reply to a initial thing or something. Or they? Uh, that's no, that's how it legally. Uh, the it only counts that you've been like it, you've been served like, kind of like thing. Like you need sentence, to, yeah. yeah, you need to sign a, a, a piece of paper. Um, again, not always how it works in reality, from what I understand, but legally. Okay. Unless you sign a piece of paper, uh, then you haven't been drafted yet. Anyway, so on our way to this booth, she's asking me about the other documents. I say, I have all of those. And she says, give them to me. I hand her the documents. And she says, you're going to have to wait here. There was a weird moment where she got documents. In hindsight, my understanding is the purpose of what she said is like, I want you to acknowledge, like, these are the documents that I have. I'm going to give them back to you. But at the time, it felt like, like, uh, like she's being happy about how she tricked me. Like she's saying, "Do you have mm -hmm. the documents?" I say, I, "I do." She says, "You're going to give them to me," and I give her the documents. And she goes, "Now look here, I got your passport, I got your foreign passport, I got your military ID. Sit here." And then she leaves. Uh, and, and that's so kind sat, of a way of saying we're in the driver's seat. You better tell us the truth. You think? I yeah, I guess so. So uh, I sat there for like ten minutes. And she came back and she had more questions, which were, have you visited your local military uh, office? I said, no. She said, so you do not have any paper from them saying that you are allowed to leave. And I said, no, I do not. She said, your passport says you registered in Moscow. You're flying out from St. Petersburg. Uh, what's up with that? And I said uh, that my wife's grandmother got sick with COVID and we we're visiting, which is which is kind of true. I mean, she did get sick with, with COVID and, and we did visit her, though we also lived in St. Petersburg before then. Um, anyway, so she asked you know, a few more questions and, uh, and I said, keep waiting and left into her room and then came back and said, come with me. And we went to the- How did you feel at the room. moment she said, come with me? <laughs> I was just like, I was sitting there thinking, all right, you've, you've done mindfulness meditation. You like breathe, focus on you. There's no need to think about shit. Uh, and uh, yeah, the come with me part turned out to be a good thing. We went to the border control booth. She stamped my passport and uh, ticket and said, have a nice trip. So you asked how I am. Uh, how am I? I have nothing to complain. I've got, what, 15 minutes of being scared. Yeah. That is that is not uh, the worst kind of circumstance that people are finding themselves in these days. So you had initially decided to leave after Putin basically announced the invasion. It was after his one of his uh, one of the two speeches he gave right for the yeah. invasion that you you found kind of unsettling. Um, and then so you were in the first wave uh, and, and, yeah. and you were only going back for uh practical reasons and temporarily to begin with but um so okay well congratulations um i uh let me let me start by asking you and and again i know that you you always emphasize when we talk that look you don't there are whole parts of russian society you're not in much contact with you don't you you know, and there are a lot of things you don't understand. Uh, you can report fairly reliably about what it's like within your social circle and so on. 
that's only gotten worse <laughs> in, in the sense time. of what i mean first of all we should say your social obviously you are a relatively uh you know the the, the nationalists the russian nationalists that i follow on twitter mm. you know would would almost in, ha, have had a low opinion of you to begin with as as what they would think of as cosmopolitan westernized right not 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 truly deeply russian in a sense uh, right that that's that's the way they look at you these are the biggest boosters of the invasion and there are and there are those right right uh am, am i right about about this division first of all like you're in this part of society they're in that and they don't like you i mean a russian nationalist yeah probably would have something bad to say about me that is does not mean that like everybody who is not cosmopolitan would have like you saw when we started talking a guy walked past in the background that's a friend of my wife um they're both from a, a smaller northern town Arkhangelsk uh his job is to fix cars specialized on engines uh you know that's that's pretty fucking russian uh, very cold city, <laughs> very up there. You mean a car that doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a man who works with his hands and, you know, um, uh, and, he, and I don't think he, he knows English very well, uh, but, you know, we're, we're totally on the same page uh, as to the war and to, you know, other things in life. So it's not that the division is so strict, like if you speak right. English, you're not Russian. Do you have a sense for how widespread his sentiment is among and what exactly is his sentiment he was he was opposed to the war from the beginning or did he not think about it much until mobilization or no he was opposed from the beginning um i don't really know anybody personally who is not i like it's like a two degrees of separation between me and somebody who is for the war or doesn't care um, everybody from my social circle, people from different cities, you know, it's not only Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, were shocked and appalled to begin with. And then the mobilization, of course, makes things, you know, Aristovich, the uh, presidential advisor of Zelensky, uh, who's a very prominent, very popular politician and uh, a, a prolific speaker and commentator, um, he says, the mobilization is when the Russian people really like the war has gotten to the Russian people up until then you could just go about your life as if there is no war you know okay coca-cola is not as readily available as before and some clothing stores have been closed and you can't access Facebook or something but you have your job and you prices have risen but you're not in physical danger mm -hmm. um, and now it has become much more immediate and you know you look at the numbers of men who have left just in these few days since the mobilization so it, it's it has become more immediate for a lot of people and but you don't purport to have a sense for kind of the distribution of opinion i mean initially the polls you know for what they're worth uh because obviously you know in in a in a in a more authoritarian society people might be reluctant to answer pollsters honestly but for what it's worth the polls had showed that 
the large majority of Russians at the beginning said they supported the war. Um, do you kind of not even claim to have a sense for what the actual lay of the land either was then or is now, opinion-wise? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, if you compare the two points in time, I think uh, the number of people who are against the war has risen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's partly because of selfish concerns. You know, it's while it's happening somewhere else, you can more easily be for it when it's you who's going to go kill or die. Uh, you, you might start having second thoughts. Um, I do not trust those polls uh, for a number of reasons. Like, I don't trust the people who do the polls. And then the very, you know, uh, you're asking a person in Russia, uh, in a place that has become more and more uh, sort of authoritarian, totalitarian, whatever adjective you want to use over time, in a case, you know, in a state of the special operation, they call it. You know, in that context, to ask somebody, do you support it or not, is, you know, are you willing to speak out mm-hmm. loudly uh, and knowing that you might face even jail sentence uh, for that? You know, mm-hmm. and that, that's not that's not the same thing as asking an American who they support at a presidential election or something. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the number of people who are against the war, I think, has risen substantially because more information has come out. Uh, you know, you can you can close your eyes to it for a certain amount of time, but uh, you will start hearing about the atrocities that are committed. You will see the pictures of cities that are being destroyed. You know that it's been a high, you know a little more than half a year, so this is it doesn't seem like a, a very limited special operation. Now there is a draft that also doesn't seem like a you know there is a lot of lies coming out from the government. The numbers that they say. When they announced mobilization, Shaigu, the um, defense minister, said that we lost. He had like a very specific number to a single a person. It's like five thousand six hundred something Russian soldiers died. Which is and so we're gonna. Which has got to be low. Yeah, I mean, it's like five thousand died, and so we're not. Gonna, we're now gonna need to have three hundred thousand more drafted. That doesn't mm-hmm. seem to add up. And then that number, uh, people don't trust either. Uh, you know, the fact that he said it's 300,000 because in the actual um, decree or whatever that's mm-hmm. called, mm-hmm. there's one secret uh, uh, point. Uh, like you can read the decree online, but one is redacted and they say that's where the numbers are listed. So we don't know. Um, and And from just talking to people, you know, like it, when the COVID pandemic started, it took a while for for me to start having these like, oh, this person got sick or that person got sick. Mm-hmm. With this mobilization, a couple of days in, I know a person who knows a person. Um, who's and, been, who's and been not, mobilized, who, who's been conscripted. Yeah, yeah, and not one, like it's, it's, it's pretty widespread. And it's not evenly distributed too. Like the mm-hmm. fact that I know people you know, in Moscow uh, and 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 St. Petersburg, that is telling because, uh, from what we can tell, it actually is slanted heavily towards smaller towns and villages and non-Russian populations. Um, so yeah, I think it's pretty pretty widespread, and we don't know 
whether there is going to be like the first wave, the second wave, the third wave. We don't know what number they're settling on for now. If they are settling on a number, it may be just a slow process of yeah. uh, getting more and more people in. Now, you 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 talked about just now, you alluded to, you know, information circulating, including, uh, you know, images of cities that had been bombed out and of atrocities. Mm-hmm. How widely is that stuff circulating? Do you, do, you, do you think a high percentage of the Russian people have seen clear evidence of Russian atrocities uh, as well as images of bombed out cities? I don't think... I don't think the a lot of them or you know I don't think the majority has seen images but but they probably at least have heard the accusations. Mm-hmm. And and at that point it would seem to me that either you want to look it up and figure out what you think uh in which case you will easily find those images. Because um, because pretty much everyone has internet access now. Yeah, the internet access. I mean, maybe not everybody, but but yeah, it's it's pretty widespread. If you want to look it up, you'll find it. If it, it will take a little bit of effort, right? It's yeah. not like you know the websites on which I've seen those images. Uh, you can't access without VPN. All of the free media in Russia has been banned, as well as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, most people uh, don't have VPN, right? That's right. And 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 some and some who and then the VPN services uh have been under attack and not all of them are working. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's like obstacles, but I think after you've heard, listen, there are pictures that you can look for mm-hmm. uh and they're horrific, then it's on you to go and and look it up and it's not like impossible to 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 find them it's not it's not very very hard it just takes a little bit of effort maybe um my guess is you know a person who say in april says no we're doing the correct thing uh, there are nazis in ukraine and russia needs to protect itself from the collective west and all of that kind of stuff if you tell them you should look those images up there's you probably will meet some resistance and I mm-hmm. don't think they're going to go ahead and look them up right away. Mm-hmm. But I think as the time goes on, as especially now with the mobilization, you know, uh, you might know a person who have been drafted. You might be a person like that yourself. You might be a mother of such person. Um, you might be a mother who sa- whose son left in February and has not come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is gonna spread. Like before we had social media, we still had like rumors and word of mouth. So Putin is, uh, seems to be backtracking. He's clearly mindful uh, and concerned about this reaction. I mean, only today, and I should say, we're taping this a few days before it'll go public, uh, only one day before it'll be available to paid uh, non-zero newsletter subscribers. But um, but this is, today is is Thursday, October 6th. I heard. I heard, uh, you know, because things are changing fast enough that who knows uh, yeah. what things will be like in three or four days. But um, I heard this morning that Putin was saying, you know, there were uh, mistakes some people were included in eligibility for mobilization who shouldn't have been. And, you know, this is the second kind of walk back. I've seen. They're clearly concerned 
And well, this kind of thing is is almost traditional, you know, it's like it's almost a Soviet trope, like there are excesses in localities, you know, it's mm -hmm. the general thrust is everything how it's supposed to be. But yeah, there is like this particular head of the military office in this particular locality uh, screwed it up and we're going to fix that. Uh, and, and there's a lot of that, you know, you, you take two steps forward, then you have to take a half a step back and then people breathe a little you know, easier than when you took the two steps forward. So they they always do this kind of thing. Right. The uh, so I, I want to ask you what are uh, some of the major misconceptions you think in the West about either about how Russians broadly view the world, how Putin views the world, how some sector of Russia views the world. But but first. I want to throw out a candidate uh, that's re relevant to what we we just discussed, which is that I, I think uh, in the West, among people broadly, I guess, there's sometimes this idea that in, you know, autocracies, you know, like dictators are these people who don't need to worry about what the people think because they're dictators. They can just say, we're going to do this. We're going to invade this country. I get to decide. It's not a democracy. I've always thought, it's almost closer to the opposite. They're, they're, they're so, they are often so insecure about their legitimacy because they weren't, they haven't been recently elected in any kind of legitimate election or something uh, that they worry a lot about public opinion. They certainly put a lot of resources into manipulating it. Um, so, so I think uh, I've always thought, well, actually, th this is a cognitive empathy issue because. Mm -hmm. I, I think and I'm about to write about an example of this in the newsletter, a specific example uh, before long. But, you know, if, if this is also related about how hard it is to exercise cognitive empathy toward enemies, there's a lot of themes here. But um, <clears throat> I've noticed that when people in the West assess a Putin speech, they don't they don't give much time to the possibility that it's a a product of political calculation, right? He's he's he wants to send this message, he wants to assuage this part of the public or inspire this part of the public. They take it as if it's it's an actual literal, it's a, it's just a straightforward statement of his actual beliefs and view of the world. Now we would never do, you know, we tend not to do that with Western politicians. It's the opposite. If you say, well, maybe. Maybe Biden said that because he actually believes it. You'd say, well, that's so naive. I mean, he's a, he's a politician. This is totally right. a political calculation. With Putin, it's like the opposite. It's like we 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 are so unaware that he he there are domestic political forces he's responding to. Some are at the elite level, you know, he he, he uh, in various senses. Some are at the grassroots level. At least that's that's my take. Is that the West underestimates? Uh, uh, the role of political forces in shaping his behavior and policy. Well, so in terms of the public opinion, my understanding is they do have their own sort of internal service to measure public opinion. They do their own focus groups and polls for uh, either that are not released. Um, uh, they, they get leaked sometimes, but they're not released because it's just for internal understanding of how much support mm. uh, he has. It actually 
I've seen it argued that that um, it is these kinds of polls that taught him that war is a good thing because uh, his approval ratings have gone up during the Chechen wars, uh, during the annexation of Crimea. Um, so it would make sense that he would lo- learn that this is a tool that he can use to mm-hmm. uh, get more people behind him. Um, it is not the same thing, of course, as in Western democracies where the polls, you know, translate to election results. That he doesn't have to worry about at all. Mm-hmm. So the polls is something to measure the temperature to figure out like how much unrest you might uh, see if uh, uh, you take a certain action. But then again, like the reason we're not seeing as massive protests as we've seen like 10 years ago in Russia is not because he's become more popular. Like there was, if you look at, you know, annexation of Crimea 2014, there were pretty big protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg and in other cities. I attended one. It was a, a good showing. Um, and you haven't seen that since the beginning of the war. This is not because fewer people, you know, are against an actual conflict with people dying than uh, uh, against annexation of Crimea. That's the reverse of the situation. But now the leaders of the protests have been either jailed or killed or left the country. And going to a protest, it was risky then. It's much riskier now. Um, I think the first day uh, since the mobilization, there were something like a thousand, maybe a little more than a thousand people detained after a protest. Mm -hmm. And I think a fifth of them have been drafted. Right. That's a real disincentive to protest. That's another. If you're going to be sent to the front lines. Yeah. Which is, it also, the other thing about this mobilization, which which takes away the support for the war, um, is is just poorly executed. Yeah. There are a lot of videos of uh, these people who have been conscripted, and they don't have uh, equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, in one case, they got rusty. A, you know, machine guns. There's a video of uh, uh, like a, I don't know the the English equivalent of her uh, position, uh, but but uh, there's a woman who is instructing uh, people. Sorry, just need to. I told you I have plumbing issues. Um, Nikita, uh, for people just listening, is is working on the plumbing in his new Armenian apartment. Uh, if you. Uh, there's a video of a woman. Can't you anything? Just ask. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a, a woman telling there is like all these newly uh, new recruits in front of her, and she says, "Call your mother. Uh, she will send you some money because you are gonna need to buy as you know whatever you can yeah. for your own equipment." Uh, and she says, "Guys, don't laugh, but get some menstrual pads and tampons. Do you know why tampons?" They go, no. She says, that's for bullet wounds. You put it inside, they soak in the blood and they stop the bleeding. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. There are a lot of people who are just, there are videos of people just getting drunk on their way to wherever. And then it turns out that this wherever is like a field and they're just left in the field and they uh, just burn fires. In Ukraine? In Ukraine? No, no, in Russia. This is... 
like untrained people who are gonna go to the war at some point in the mm -hmm. future, but like the first locality they're brought to is just a, uh, in the middle of nowhere. They're not given any equipment. They're not given a tent or anything. And they're just left there. And uh, so that's, you know, this is a different kind of uh, reason for a person to be against the war, not like this is evil. We're killing innocent civilians. Um, and these but, circulate again, they circulate on the Internet and they one way or another, their existence comes to the attention of a lot of Russians. I think so. I mean, again, it's hard to estimate how many Russians, but um, mm. yeah, it's it's more effective than in the old days when we didn't have the Internet. And even in those days, you would still get rumors. Right. Well, this must matter uh, because for one thing, I don't know if you saw this, but and I think this is in reference to different set of videos. I think these were videos. In supposedly in Ukraine, of Russian soldiers complaining that they're not uh, getting what they want. And, and last night on Twitter, I, I don't know if you've caught wind of this or if it's going to turn out to be true, but I, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they, they I, there's apparently real evidence that some of these videos were staged by uh, people from the Wagner Group, these mercenaries, mm -hmm. for the purpose of undermining support for the minister of defense in which case this would be a power struggle between possibly this guy how do you pronounce his name prigojin 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 yeah prigojin uh who runs the wagner group and has always been close to putin of course the defense minister is very close to putin but this would be a sign that we're already seeing a power struggle that putin doesn't totally have control over that's an interesting development it is yeah and uh yeah, Prigozhin and Kadyrov has been the, this is the head of Chechnya. He has been, I mean, he's always been a, a loose cannon. Yeah. Uh, but he's been criticizing the overall strategy. He's been criticizing specific generals. Uh, and it does seem like a power struggle for more influence and, and maybe higher positions. Um, and from what I understand, Putin, I don't know, I don't know about Kadyrov. This is a complicated relationship, I assume, but Prigozhin is said to have been close to Putin and he's been, you know, he does a lot of different stuff. And one of those things is the Wagner group. And uh, there's that video. And also I was, um, you know, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh shit, we're finding out like this is being leaked. And then it took me a, an hour or something to realize this is probably a part of the marketing campaign. Is this the prison, about, the prison video? Yeah. So he's delivering a speech, he's pitching the war to inmates, which I mean, it's completely, you know, it was hard to imagine this happening a year ago. Uh, but yeah, there's just a guy who appears in the prison and said, and everybody's brought to the, you know, open space and gives, he gives them the, the pitch which sounds like something from a Hollywood movie from, you know, the Expendables or something. Stallone should be making these kinds of speeches. He says, uh, you know, uh, like he gives them the thing, you know. You're well, the the serve deal is with if the they'll elite. fight for six months, they'll, they won't have to come back to prison. They'll be free men. That's the, the, the thing. And then go ahead about this. That's right. Yeah. And they will be compensated. And if they die, they will be buried as heroes and their families are going to be uh, compensated. And uh, he has some qualifications. Uh, then he says, now as to the question of trust and guarantees, well, 
is there anybody who can get you out of here? There are two that can, God and Allah, and then there's me. But God and Allah are getting you out of here in a wooden box. I get you out of here alive. I do not always return you alive. It's this very, it's actually kind of like. My favorite part is when he says, now, if you do go to Ukraine and you change your mind and you decide it was a mistake, you will be shot as a deserter. (laughs) He's like, he's not, he's not sugarcoating this thing. That's and he right. says, you will be shock troops. In other words, you, you'll, you'll be the guys rushing the, the trenches, man. This is not, you know, this is, he, he's, he totally levels with him. This is, you may well die. If you change yeah. your mind, we will kill you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is structured as there's a call to action at the end. He doesn't give them a lot of time. He says, you got five minutes to think about it. Uh, he does, you know, lift the ego up like you would be heroes you will be compensated um he says that he gives this anecdote about um i don't know what 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 the point was i guess he was saying like that your chances on survival are pretty high or something or maybe he's just saying this is the elite uh little army he has but he has you know my man he gives a number i forget what 50 or something people went into the trenches and slaughtered everybody with knives and three of them died. So it's you go into the trenches, you kill everybody in, only three out of the 50 or however many people die. And I guess he ties it. He says that firstly, there's like qualifications. You need to be not older than a certain age. And then he says, this is roughly, you know, like if you're mm-hmm. in good shape, we'll give you an examination and, and maybe you can get in. And so he gives a story about the slaughtering uh, uh, soldiers with knives and, and he says of of my people three of them died one of them was 57 or something mm-hmm. um yeah so that guy is there and he seems to be fighting for more power and um and his career path so far has been pretty damn successful yeah he's the guy known as putin's chef because he had a catering business or something that that Putin gave steered a lot of business toward or something. Yeah, I I I I think this is a horrible, like just a flounder on the opposition's part to have that nickname to him I for see. him still. Yeah. I mean, like I understand, like that it's like historically like, we first found out that there, there was this catering corruption scheme and so Putin's chef. But then the moment you find out he has a private army that's been fighting on different continents, I think you need to update the nickname. <laughs> 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 like yeah. Putin's butcher or something. Putin's you can come, thug, yeah. up, um, come up so, with something uh, that has a culinary connection and the killing of the people connection. So I said I would I would ask you what are some big misconceptions you encounter among Westerners and just how how Rus- yeah. some Russians or some Russians or Putin or anybody looks at the world. Yeah. I don't know if um misconception is how i would put it and and i don't know if it, this is hard to think about my my take is when i hear things like russians believe this and and and, and here's like the way they understand the war or the world or whatever my sense there is not a coherent mm-hmm. worldview i think i think this is mostly emotional because you see it in conversation if you if you're talking to somebody um 
who is, let's say, for the war, and then you point to a contradiction in their thinking, they never go like, oh, I haven't thought about that, right? Or no, here's the counter-argument to that. It's, it's usually like the, the coherence of the thought is, is not necessary because it's, it, this is how I see it. I yeah. don't you know, pretend to, to be correct about all things, but this, I'm trying to think about it. Here's my thoughts at the time, at the moment. And it feels to me that this is uh, emotional. This is uh, about loyalty and not feeling like a bad person. There's uh, sometimes there's a circular reasoning, especially early in the war, you would see this where let's say you point to you, you know, pictures from Bucha or or someplace like that, or we're destroying this city. And the argument for this is fake news would be, we would never do that. Like, this is not us, because why would we do such a horrible thing? And there, well, what, what do you, how do you argue against that? Um, I'm saying I'm saying you we're doing a horrible thing and you're saying no it's horrible so it can't be us. Yeah. So so my sense and and then there's a lot of frustration these days you know and tension between the people who are against it's not even at this this point it's not just against the war it's more like you think everything is falling to pieces and and the country is is, is turning to something has already turned into something completely dark and bizarre and you need to get the fuck out or you need to fight but we don't know how to you know this kind of alarmist sort of uh rhetoric people who say have a sense of urgency and the people who either support the war or say you know i'm just gonna wait until we see what how it shakes out now the sense of of kind of uh, descending darkness that that begins does that go back years and years or is that something that you're 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 pegging to the beginning of the war or what the war the war mm -hmm. and the mobilization and the things that we've seen the various developments we've seen throughout the war like the you know guy getting prisoners murderers out of prison to murder more people in the war you know this kind of thing and and the you know a lot of things have happened in the past half a year. Um, so there's a lot of tension between these groups and a lot of misunderstanding. Like the cognitive empathy thing is very hard to practice when, and again, it's not just like, it's it's not even, you have to be mm -hmm. like in stark contrast. Like I know a couple, the guy would like to leave. Uh, he is not leaving because his wife doesn't want to leave. And and when we try to talk to her and understand her perspective, you know, like I couldn't, like I, 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 my understanding, my own private understanding is, um, just for whatever reasons, emotional. Maybe she's afraid of leaving. Maybe she's attached, has like romantic attachment to the country and the land. Uh, one way to formulate it that I think she did at, a, at, at some point is like, is if everybody leaves and, uh, you know, we're surrendering the country to these thugs, I don't want to do that. Uh, but but when she first tried to explain herself to me, it seemed a little bit of a word salad to me. 
And this is my friend who I think is smart, who I respect, who is against the war, who thinks that uh, everything that's happening is horrible, but still to see her perspective, like, okay, so, so we're on the same page about all of that. And now your husband is in risk of physical danger. He might be drafted. He might be sent to kill or die. Yeah. Or if he you know, disagrees, he might be sent to prison. That instills a sort of sense of urgency, you know, when I look at the situation and and she says, you know, I'm, I don't want to leave. And she, does given, she elaborate on why she doesn't want to leave? Well, I, I try to summarize some of this. I mean, if I try mm. to talk more about it, it will become, you know, first a little too personal. She didn't give me a permission to to talk about this. And also it would enter. I mean, I think here's here's maybe uh, an obstacle that I see on the path of your cognitive empathy project. Mm-hmm. Like people go to therapy to understand their own motivations in their marriage. Right. And, and it takes them years to figure out why I myself act a certain way mm-hmm. when, you know, a certain behavior, uh, uh, when my wife exhibits a certain behavior and it takes years to figure out, oh, the, this thing happened in my childhood and I reacted to it a certain way. And then it, it became a coping mechanism that persisted for years. In yourself, that's hard to figure out. Right. Putin we how how much do we know about his inner life like what it is what is it like to be that person he lives a very very strange existence for like compared to most of us like yeah. I, I what is the how do i imagine the frame of reference like i've been the leader of russia for 22 years i wear these shoes with high heels to look taller i have uh, nuclear weapons at my disposal, I can murder people. I, you know, here's my reading list of philosophers from the 19th century. There's a lot there that, you know, yeah. so to put yourself in his shoes and, and be confident, like, here's how Putin sees the world, uh, that seems tough because, again, yeah. sometimes it's hard to understand yourself. In the, the reason I brought up this example with my friend is, you know, we've talked about this mm-hmm. and I still don't totally understand my basic, my, for the, for the time being, my kind of um, placeholder for understanding her position is, I think there's a lot of emotional stuff going on and she's mm-hmm. confused and that sounds condescending and I don't want to be condescending to my friend, but I do not understand mm-hmm. her perspective. Let me, and let me say a few more. things. I mean, First of all, in a case like that with your friend, I mean, you know, I have several siblings who voted for Trump, which I certainly didn't do. Um, and so I'm kind of familiar with the plight. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in that case, it's it's not, in a way, it's not deeply puzzling. Uh, well, let me let me skip that part and say. Uh, a couple of things. One is that uh, you're, you're definitely right. It's very hard, and it, and and as you suggest, it's it's hard to understand how, you, in a sense, how you see the world. At least it's hard to understand why you do things, why you right. react certain ways. 
sometimes to predict your own reactions to things. Right. That's all hard. And that's in part because there are cognitive biases that impede your self-understanding. And we know what some of them are. Uh, there's some overlap, but, uh, by the way, between those and the ones you apply to your friends. So sure. it, it, if you do something bad or your friends or allies do something bad, uh, there's a natural tendency to look for extenuating circumstances. Well, I was in a bad mood because I didn't get my my nap. My friend was in a bad mood because they didn't get their nap. I was under stress, you know, at work, whatever they were. That, you do that with friends and allies. With enemies, including Putin, it's the opposite. He did this bad thing not because he was under political pressure, no circumstances. He's, a, he's just a bad person. There is that. So we know certain things about kind of patterns of distortion in assessing the way people view the world and why they do things. That can be helpful. That said, it's always a probabilistic business. You never know. Well, you know, I personally think you never know anything for sure. I don't right. know that I'm not in a gooey vat like in the Matrix, you know. Sure. Uh, and and uh, but I, I think I have 99.99% confidence that I'm not. But you never know anything for sure. Uh, I'd say the same thing with mine Putin. has gotten lower. <laughs> well, mine's, mine's getting lower. Uh, but uh, the uh, but I'd say, you know, as you know, my view is, and of course, part of the problem with the first problem you encounter with cognitive empathy is if you start explaining why somebody did something bad, like I think if we look at things from Putin's point of view, it's easier to understand how he wound up invading Ukraine, like right away. You are besieged with people claiming that you're trying to justify the invasion. And when you think about it, that's a real impediment to discourse broadly. If we can never make an honest attempt to explain why people do bad things because we'll be accused of justifying them, we're going to have to spend the rest of eternity in very consequential darkness mm -hmm. as, as to why bad shit happens, which will mm -hmm. handicap us as we try to prevent bad things from happening anyway. Uh, and, and this, by the way, this is a, a fascinating subject in its own right. Why is human psychology set up to conflate explanation with justification? Whole interesting subject in its own right. Um, but I think in the case of Putin, as you know, my view is uh, that the U.S. mismanaged its relationship with Russia going back 25 years. Uh, and if we hadn't, there might not have been an invasion of Ukraine, which, again, is not to get Putin off the hook. It was a violation of international law, which I take very seriously. It was uh, an unjustified invasion and so on. But uh, it, it's, you know, and, and to get back to, well, how much do we know about Putin? If you ask me, uh, in order to do the things we should have done, to manage our relationship with Russia better, you wouldn't have to have deep penetrating insights into Putin the man, right? Yeah, but you, I, you'd have you'd yeah. have to you'd have to make basic assumptions about what kinds of things people take as disrespect, how yeah, people respond yeah. to evidence of disrespect. Maybe add to the that the fact that you know uh, we have reason to believe that Putin has a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. As you said, you know, he's he's like a short guy. He learned martial arts in his teen years, uh, possibly as a way to make sure, you know, not get picked on in the playground. Who knows? But we know like that's a 
there is reason to think that he responds particularly to slights. In fact, Fiona Hill said that to Obama when she was an advisor. And by her account, she said to Obama, like, like, don't like, don't like ridicule him in public. He'll respond badly. And Obama goes out and and, and does that, at least on one occasion. And, and she's like tearing out her hair. But anyway, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the other compounding factor, I think, is, look, as the Cold War ended, Russia is it's accustomed to being one of the two great powers of the world as part of the Soviet Union. It's undergoing a significant diminution in status. OK. Putin is an autocratic leader, so he's probably going to make a closer connection between his identity and, and, and the identity of his country than, 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 than is often made in democracies where you change your leader every four or eight years. Over right. time, that's probably going to grow. So you take right. all this into account, and it seems to me it's a pretty good bet that if you do a series of things we did, and I can enumerate them if you want, he's going to respond badly. And, and it's going to increase the chances that something explosive will happen. Uh, if, if you want to go back to the very beginning, it's like 9-11 happens. He is, as I recall, like the first leader to call Bush and say, we're here if you need us. OK, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. within months, Bush did something he knew Putin really, really, really didn't want him to do, which is get out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. You know, Putin had said, we really don't want this within months. Yeah. Bush is like, fuck you, kid. Yeah. And, and by the, which, by the way, is stupid from America's point of view. One of the stupidest of the of the of the many stupid things Bush did. Uh, there's no no logic behind getting out of that treaty. And I could I, I could go on and on. And, and, and someday I, you know, I, I've told some of this story, but um, there were and there were warnings you know, all along the way by people from the CIA saying, you know, do not, you know, Ukraine and NATO is a total red line. OK, we were warned in 2008 by Bill Burns, who is now head of the CIA because he was ambassador to Russia. He's like, this is fucking crazy. Do not talk about Ukraine and NATO. He didn't put in quite those words. It was very clear. And and. And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, so-called realists have made the argument that that NATO as a national security matter is, is Ukraine membership is going to be a problem for Russia. And, and, and what I'm saying is to, to, to think that actually the problem is deeper than that. The problem is a problem of status and, 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 and the way, uh, and, and of, and of kind of pride and insult and so on. And you have to take into account those psychological factors. I think, to make that leap, and again, well, you never know anything for sure, but to say in a probabilistic way, this Ukraine-NATO policy is also a problem for that reason. Leave aside Putin's actual national security calculations. It's what we know about, A, human psychology, B, Putin's own psychology, uh, you know, got a chip on his shoulder, C, the position Russia is in now with its status dropping and that being a sensitive issue, Seems to me that should tell you to proceed with caution. Okay. I, I don't think that calls for any blinding insights into Putin's, you know, we don't need a Freudian analysis of his childhood to say, you know, pretty good chance this is not going to increase the chances of a harmonious relationship with Russia. 
and, and something and it increases the chances something very bad happening. Burns predicted the bad thing. You know, sure. a number of people sure. did. So that's so I my have a few, I have a few reactions. Uh, and I'm, I'll probably forget the two while I'm talking about the first one, but uh, I brought it up in some conversation we had before. There is this interview that I keep coming back to from 2019 with Aristovich, who I already mentioned in this conversation. This is the advisor to Zelensky, where he predicts the war. He predicts pretty accurately. Uh, and the prediction is, he says, listen, we are Ukraine. He is at the fork in the road. We can, geographically speaking, we cannot afford neutrality. Neutrality costs a lot. You need your own standing army. We need to be either in the one camp or the other. Either we join NATO or Russia is going to consume us in 10 to 12 years. Um, I don't want to get consumed by Russia. We've been there. We've been in the Soviet Union. didn't like, like that. I want to try the NATO thing. If we do that, if we get a roadmap to join in NATO, Russia will start a war. Uh, and it's going to be a big war. And the point would be to destroy our infrastructure completely so that we are not appealing as a mm -hmm. NATO member. And the reporter says, well, which of these options is better? And Aristovich, who I like, by the way, but he strikes me as a kind of a sociopath. He's like throughout his whole time. He's just very calm and has a sense of humor and irony. Um, and he says, of course, a big war with Russia and a victory in that war and NATO membership as the result of that war. Now, I don't, I don't judge this thing because I don't think I'm in a position to judge. I definitely wouldn't want to be myself in that position to make these kinds of choices. Mm -hmm. um, but my point is he, he does seem to have an understanding of Putin's psyche and the predictable, you know, of the, of the power to predict uh, the consequences of these moves. And he, you know, he laid it out. Like, these are the choices. Here's the one that mm -hmm. I'm choosing. Uh, and, and I understand the logic of choosing. You know, he wants Ukraine to be a sovereign nation, and he thinks the chances of that is lower if um, if they did nothing. And I don't exactly know what he thought, like, how this process of being consumed by Russia would look like, but that's his perspective. Um, and I, uh, another reaction to this is 2019, said, you said? This is 2019. Yeah. Uh, and he, he he's, a, as I said, a prolific speaker, and he talks about Putin's view world uh, worldview mm -hmm. uh, now, and I think he, he does have a good insight. Um, the other, another thing I wanted to say is um, you talked about how we perceive his speeches, and we you say people in the West tend to think he's actually saying what he thinks, mm -hmm. uh, which, yeah, it's not how we see this in russia but i did feel that way about that first so like the two big uh seminal speeches he's made recently were the one when uh he was announcing the recognition of the breakaway republic as the united states mm -hmm. history of ukraine it's not a real nation this whole thing and then the most recent one when they signed the documents uh or, accepting the these regions into the Russian Federation and he made a different speech and I I can come up with the argumentation but it's more like I'm just listening to the thing and it feels a certain way and the first one felt to me like let me level with you here's what I think wait uh, and the first seemed, one was which speech 
when he gave this historical analysis of like why these regions should be a part of Russia, basically the Ukraine is not a real country. This is before the, before the invasion. Before the invasion, yeah. yeah a few days. And that one did feel to me, that did seem to me as like, here's what I think. And here's, yeah. here's why this makes sense to me. Um, and then the most recent one, before the signing of the documents uh, or accept in the regions in Russia, seemed like a complete calculated, crafted thing with certain parts targeted at certain demographics within and outside of Russia. You know, he had a little bit for the anti-woke people, you know, because we are on the side of like a family being a mother and a father and children, not parent mm -hmm. one, parent two. Mm -hmm. There's an anti-colonial thing. Like Russia is this anti-colonial power and, and America is the empire that has been dominating the world, which is like you're you just talked about like Russia being the ancestor of the imperial Russia and and you're like the, the first speech the after before the invasion, it seemed to me like the summary is like I think empires are good. I think it's good to have a few regional empires. Each has a sphere of influence, mm -hmm. and the empire on the other side of the world is not meddle in our business over here. Uh, in this speech, he's talking because he wants to appeal to India and China, and maybe even to like some left-wing intellectuals in the U.S. So he's talking about the kind of anti-colonial mm -hmm. thing, and he the, there's just like the whole speech is like just this menu of things yeah. for different little categories to uh be appealed to yeah i mean yeah i i, I that, that all makes sense to me um the uh, the on on the well a couple of things on the as as for the speech that you think genuinely represented his uh, point of view where he said, you know, Ukraine has never been a real country. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there is, uh, this deep Russian historical connection to it. Um, I, I do think he, he believes that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and of course, look, Ukraine, it is, it is not an ethnically homogeneous country. I think that's, that's part of what, that's part of what he meant in in both cases, right? It, it has this Russian part and so on, and 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 Russia actually, isn't ethnically homogeneous either. Right, right. There aren't there aren't many, but but you you tend to focus on the cases that it's convenient to focus on, right? Yeah. And, and well, but what I would say about uh, that is kind of, um, I mean, if that is supposed to mean that it was inevitable, this was his view all along, and this is the way it's presented in the West. This was his view all along. So the invasion was inevitable. You know, I would say when you see any big like breakup, friends break up, marriage breaks up, and one of the friends just starts going, you know, you've always been like this, and you've always been like that, and you've always been like this, okay? That is, on the one hand, that is actually a view they've held a long time. You know, in any marriage or friendship, you're keeping track of your grievances and you're not articulating them because it's not mm -hmm. in your interest to articulate them because the relationship is so fundamentally working. Okay. Mm -hmm, and then, mm -hmm. and then you go, shit, if you thought that all along, you should have gotten out of this relate. This was inevitable. Well, sometimes it wasn't inevitable, right? It, it's right, because it's, it's yeah. because of something the friend did 
within the last few days. But now you're saying now you're listing all these grievances that go way back and you're revealing that you've always had this view. You, there's always been a dark side to your view of your friend. Right. You've always had your complaints. And I, I, I that's my view of how we've managed our relationship with Russia. Uh, you know, it's like it didn't well, I think, have I think to that... come to this. And which leads us to the 2019 right. speech, but I'll pause and, and let you go ahead. That, that, yeah, that's 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 what I wanted to bring up. Yeah, it's I, I think fundamentally uh, Aristovich is right. I, I, I don't have the same certainty that he does about like and, and I would love to hear. I just haven't found like a, a speech where he lays it out in more detail. But yeah, Putin has always wanted and tried to keep Ukraine closed, mm -hmm. you know, to install his people in power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if it wasn't for NATO, uh, he, I mean, it's not just NATO because oh, the, EU. the think, EU is a big issue with him. Yeah. EU is a big issue. I, I, I think EU, I, I think my, my feeling, my understanding is there's the, the big grievances are NATO, and I think his view of the revolutions of the Orange Revolution and the Euromaidan is I don't think he believes in like people's movement. I don't think he thinks that happens in history. I think those are always there are people behind it and there's money behind it. And in case with the Ukrainian revolutions that uh, move the country westward, he thinks these are like special operations by the US. And uh, I think those are the two, in his worldview, those are the two, like, you're actively trying to coerce Ukraine into this relationship, and then maybe Ukraine is willing, and then he's bitter about that. But yeah, if it wasn't for NATO, I think he would go his, you know, the way he was going before that, which is try to install his guy into power. There's going to be an election. He's going to give some money to people who are pro-Russia. Maybe not just give money, you know, Prigozhin, uh, apart from having a personal army, is running that troll farm, which I've heard has become more effective than when we once talked about it some years ago. So he would try to, you know, peacefully uh, have it so that there is a puppet regime in Ukraine. Yeah, he always wanted, uh, you know, I think he always uh, thought of himself uh, as, you know, we're a great power. America gets its sphere of influence when, you know, when a regime, uh, when there's a regime it doesn't like in its neighborhood, it invades, which, which we've done repeatedly, you know, not in the last 20 years, we've invaded countries further away from us uh, more recently. But um, the, uh, but I, 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 he absolutely thinks that, um, you know, and the, the question is, uh, could we have reconciled that view with uh, a better outcome than we've got now, which is uh, tens of thousands of dead people, millions of displaced people, a non-trivial yeah. chance of nuclear war or yeah. and or wider war in Europe. Like we're in a bad place, okay? It's like, you know, uh, can you imagine that we could have steered things to to 
a place where Ukraine's fate would be better than it currently looks to me? Because I don't I don't think this is over. I, you know, I, I don't think I mean, they've done a good job of fending off Russia, but I, I don't think the happy ending Ukraine envisions where they push Russian troops all the way back over the border. I don't think that's happening. And I think we got a lot of dead people between now and the end of this thing and uh, and possibly nuclear war and so on. So um, so first of all, like with all due respect uh, for that Ukrainian politicians aspirations, those are not the only consideration in the world. And and uh, and and I I would say say that, but I I would also say I'm not convinced that we had to get to the point. Well, I'd also say it sounds to me like uh, maybe in Ukraine at that point there was actually a motivation to uh, worsen relations with Russia. Uh, it sounds like they wanted war. Was he was he part of the Zelensky administration? He was. I don't know the history in, in detail. My understanding, he, there's been like he was, and then he was, and uh -huh. then he was. But but uh, yeah, because, you know, by 2019 he was arguing, uh, you know, going with for Zelensky. Because uh, you know, part of the Russian story, I have no idea how much truth there is to this, but uh, is that uh, you know there was this ongoing war between the separatists who were Russia supported and Ukraine. Right. And, th and there was a growing sense that in Russia, I believe, that, you know, we were starting to arm, uh, U.S. was starting to arm Ukraine, which had begun by 2019, I'm pretty sure. And their story is Ukraine was using that to more and more aggressively uh, prosecute it, its war, which in their mind consisted of killing ethnic Russians in Ukraine, right? They took this very much as like an ethnic kind of nationalist thing. Um, so A, there, there's that. Uh, it sounds to me like having heard what this, the you know, Zelensky confidant said about how basically we welcome war with Russia. Maybe there's maybe maybe Ukraine was being more provocative than was optimal. I don't know. But but I but that's a that's a footnote. That's a footnote. What my main point is, um, I uh, I don't think things had to get to the point that they were in 20. 19, it would have taken real creative diplomacy, I admit, that right. would have certainly included back in 2014 trying to work out a creative solution to the EU thing, which we didn't try to do, which would be like, well, maybe there's a way for Ukraine to pursue this associate membership with the EU without uh, burning the bridges to Russia's economy that Russia doesn't want to see burned. And so may maybe there's a creative way. But I'd also say, you know, you you said Putin doesn't believe in authentic, popular uh, revolt. Well, this is a common problem in politics. In the U.S., when when there is uh, a regime, uh, even the prospect of regime materializing that we don't like in our hemisphere, there are definitely a lot of people who don't want to give much thought to the possibility that the problem is that a lot of people in that country are unhappy and don't like the U.S., it's always like it's a communist plot, right? So mm -hmm. this is a tendency, and it isn't, it isn't just about your view of whether there's such a thing as popular will. It's about a reluctance. Uh, it's about a human tendency when they see a, a nearby threat to start looking for you know, dark right, actors guess, behind it, as opposed I to guess, it actually reflecting badly on something you did. Right? Right. I guess, I guess Putin's views on that would have been different if there were pro-Russian revolutions totally. in these countries. 
but that doesn't tend to happen. Well, in fact, well, also what he would say is, look, the, the people marching in Kiev, they weren't from eastern Ukraine, okay? They were from western yeah. Ukraine. That's what he would say. There's a bunch of people, in, and he'd be right. And there's a bunch of people in eastern Ukraine, and, and they and they and they're they're ethnic Russians. That's what he, I'm just telling you what he'd say. No, but, yeah, he would. But but uh, but the other thing is, this is a good example of where I think we could have done less to encourage that kind of reaction. I personally think the U.S. was involved in the Maidan revolution in ways it shouldn't have been. And, mm -hmm. you know, to an extent that some people on, especially on the left, refer to it as the Maidan coup. I'm happy to call it a revolution, but it was a violent overthrow of a government. I mean, the, the guy fled the pro the relatively pro-Russian president of Ukraine fled for fear of his life. And there were guys in the streets there and there's arguments who started the violence. There's arguments about it, who shot first. Right. Whatever. Yeah. It's a non-democratic transfer of power. And yeah. uh, and I think the U.S. But there's been an election since then. It's not that Zelensky got in as a result yeah, yeah. of that coup. No, that's true. Right. Although the way it's cast in Russia is, well, we don't know who would be president if it hadn't been for the coup, but, uh, but the view in Russia is that it, this is all an extension of what they call the coup. So anyway, that's the view. I, I'm, I'm just saying it's a, a good cognitive empathy exercise, I think, is, is to always try to force yourself to come up with what would be the corresponding question viewed from your side, like what I just did, sure. like, like, okay, but does America ever assert the existence of dark plots when actually there's popular resistance? You know, if so, then maybe this is a human tendency. If so, maybe we should take it into account in our policy and not do things that foster that dark view, right? Yeah, so, I mean, to, to, to get back to that 2019 interview, like the way the Aristovich uh, presents the fork in the road, we have to be either in this camp or that camp that do at least the way I read this now is like, that's reflective of both of the sides, right? Like Putin doesn't want to let go. And then America with NATO as the uh, military apparatus around the world is also a kind of an empire. Yeah. You know, he, he it's not that he says, I want to be in one of those camps. He says, I don't think we can afford neutrality. Yeah. And these are the two choices. And here's the choice that I like better. Yeah. I mean, so with, I, 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 I do think it's, it's generally like I've been throughout the last few months, I've been like, I'm reluctant to just accept this worldview, but uh, it's getting harder and harder to not. Wait, which world? Which worldview? To see, like the way the world organized politically, as just fundamentally dark. It's games that are about power, and deals, and money, yeah. and um, and most people at the top are okay with sacrificing lives for well-being of other people, and that's just how it's generally run and it's just we you know outsource like america doesn't have war on its soil but it, it has a lot of wars in other parts of the world you know and i feel uh, whatever the feeling is like the war has become this like urgent 
thing that uh, is the topic of every conversation since since this started in Ukraine. But wars have been happening all over the place. And for me, they were just something in the news. Like, I still don't have, like, a good understanding of exactly what is going on in Syria, let's say, because mm-hmm. I was just never a person who would read up on the most recent military conflict someplace. And, and I think that's a problem. Yeah. Um, well, let me say, first of all, wisdom is coming to you sooner than it came to me. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would describe my own current stage of, in the evolution of my thought as like, I'm more and more cynical about the way the world works. And like, I'm old. That's kind of late dawn. I mean, I, I, I was always, look, I was never Pollyanna. And maybe I've been getting steadily more cynical. But, uh, and, and you know, that partly under, in a way, this uh, helps explain maybe the way I look at this. One area where I've become more cynical is I, I've developed, I think, a really just a clearer understanding of how U.S. foreign policy is made. Hmm. It ain't pretty. And it, it is not about actually pursuing America's actual interests as I see them. And I don't even have a narrow view of America's interests. I want America to be very involved in the world, cultivating mm-hmm. respect for international law, you know, ve- building international institutions. Uh, uh, and, and in that way, I, I really do think, uh, I, I, I hate the thought that Putin will come out of this ahead because it, it's a positive reinforcement for a, a flagrant violation of international law. And there, here I differ from a lot of people who otherwise agree with me about mistakes America made and blah, blah, blah. It, you know, is there just like, does America really have an interest in Ukraine? Yes, I think America has an interest uh, wherever, the, uh, you know, the, uh, something's going to happen that, that influences the evolution of international norms and laws. I mean, unfortunately, America has done as much to <laughs> erode those norms and laws as, right. as Russia. But uh, that's another question. Each case matters. Um, the uh anyway that that's a a digression uh but i share your your cynicism um can i ask you about one more question in, yeah. this, in the cynical uh field that we've entered i think i've heard this from from a bunch of russians maybe even a couple of armenians that um you know Okay, Putin's horrible, and and it's horrible that this war is happening, and and you know not removing any blame from Putin, but this is a successful. The, what we're seeing is a success of the strategy of the U.S. You're not losing your own people; it's Ukrainians who are doing the fighting. Uh, they're successful at the counteroffensive. Uh, Russia is being isolated. You can see Russia breaking apart as a result of this war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll have Ukraine in your camp and Russia would be falling apart. And so th- th- here Putin, apart from being evil, he's also just not good at what he thinks he's good at. He just was played for a fool and he's going to lose. And the U.S. cynically is, mm-hmm. there. it's not a blunder. It's it's a successful operation that is within the overall strategy of the country. What do you think about that kind of perspective? Well, I'm not as cynical as some like on the left. And maybe it's partly because I'm not as far left as some on the left in the sense that I, I don't think this is like this orchestrated, you know, like, oh, 
oh, cool, he's getting sucked into our trap. Good, mm-hmm. there will be a war. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that. But I do think that one reason we uh, did not, I think, make any serious attempt at pre-war diplomacy that would have prevented the invasion, and there are a number of reasons for that, but I think one was we did have this simplistic, zero-sum, Cold War mindset. There's a piece I wrote, and if people want to Google uh, an ominous murder in Moscow, it's the title of the non-zero newsletter piece oh, I yeah. wrote. It was, it was about the killing of Darina Dugina, Dugina, Dugina. Dugina the daughter of uh, this prominent nationalist Dugin. It's unclear whether they meant to kill her or her father. In any event, uh, New York Times reported yesterday the Ukrainian government did this on, on Russian soil, murdered a civilian. Uh, they may have been aiming at a different civilian. Murder is murder. This is a war crime. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think, as I understand it, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to target civilians. Period. As I understand it, intentionally. And um, I mean, honestly, to me, the concept of a war crime still is a weird one. Like to <laughs> well, me, a war is a crime. Right. Well, invasion is a crime. Putin committed a crime just by invading. But then right. it's interesting because once you're in a war, the rules for what constitutes a, a crime are yeah, symmetrical. Yeah. Right. So, th- so. The things Russia's not supposed to do are the same things Ukraine is not supposed to do, even though Ukraine was invaded. That, that's the way it works. So that's why I say, um, and look, I only emphasize this because I just think the American media is not doing a very even-handed job of covering this uh, as a rule. And, and it's important to understand what uh, both sides uh, do wrong. In that case, my complaint at the time I wrote this was that this could be escalatory it could inflame the Russian nationalists. I think that, so far as I can tell, was the net effect. It may have played a role in getting us where we are. But anyway, the uh, what I want to say is there's a different part of that piece where I focus on a podcast done shortly after the invasion featuring a state, high-ranking State Department official named Derek Cholet. He, he reports directly to Anthony Blinken. And he says, no, we refuse to talk about the NATO issue with Russia before the war. So that's the first clear statement that we just said, no, we're not going to talk about this, which was, of course, high among the ostensible uh, on the on the list, uh, uh, arguably at the top of the list of ostensible demands uh, that 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 might have prevented invasion. Who knows if, if taken more seriously? But what I want to say is. He the host kind of pushes back. This is like in March. And the host says, wait a second. You didn't. You didn't uh, even you didn't even discuss it. He says, no, look, NATO's not. It's not an offensive threat to Russia. And the host who's very smart says, well, wait a second. You've heard of the security dilemma. Nations always take things you don't see as offensive as offensive. You see them as defensive. They see them. This is a classic of human nature and political science. And the guy's response is, look, this is not a win for Russia. Okay, I don't see this as a win for Russia. And you can see what he's thinking. He's thinking this has turned out to be a trap for Putin. And and what he's not saying, but his thinking is so it's good for us. Mm -hmm. And and I have one, you know, just something to say to this guy. No, you stupid motherfucker. (laughs) War is not a zero sum game. And if we have a nuclear war, you know, I'm going to I'm going to and I'm alive. I'm going to spend the rest of my life highlighting this idiotic framework that our State Department seems to have entered the war with, which is that it was a zero-sum thing, bad for Russia is good for us. That is, 
sorry, but uh, that that is just so it's wrong on so many levels. Nuclear war is only the most dramatic illustration. Um, yeah, and I won't it get doesn't into have that. to be nuclear for yeah. So for a lot of people to die and, and uh, not just that, but to that. impede cooperation on a ton of things we urgently need to cooperate on to prevent like that too biological warfare or something a lot of problems out there um so uh i got a little too animated there perhaps but the answer is on the one hand i don't i'm not as conspiratorial about the americans like Mm -hmm. fighting being willing to fight russia to the last ukrainian as as it's put but i think Mm -hmm. now that's where we are you know the u.s is like Maybe people at the State Department are, are starting to go scratch their heads and go, oh, I suppose this thing could go too far, couldn't it? Yeah, it could. Um, but by and large, I think we we have been viewing this in this simplistic zero-sum Cold War framework. And uh, so I, I would say some cynicism is warranted. Uh, now, we've talked a long time. Uh, I, you know, all I'll say, uh, there's a lot of, there's other things I could say about the 2019 speech. All all I will say is, I'm far from sure that pre-war diplomacy uh, could have prevented the war. I see no Mm -hmm. excuse for not trying, which is, was our position, apparently. Um, But my view is, we've been mismanaging the the relationship with Russia for 25 years, and the farther back you go, the more I feel that if it had been done right from there on out, the chances would be higher that there would not be a war. I certainly think that if you just start in the Clinton era and just do things very differently in ways tons of people urgently recommended they be done, by the way, sages in the world of American foreign policy were saying, no, don't start expanding NATO. And, and if you, I, but if you, I, I, I think I, I'd like to add to that apart from, so I agree with you, but apart from like, don't expand NATO and and be more respect, respectful and, and so forth. There's also this is like Navalny's uh, point that for a long time the West was fine taking in Russian oligarch money without asking a lot of questions about where this money is coming from, allowing Putin Putin's regime to continue evolving in this corrupt fashion and use that. To then buy the villas and the yachts and 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 have parties in the West, and if there was more of a like, here's the way we do things. There has to be. It's not just we have laws here in the UK, and you do whatever you want as long as you you know you you bring the cash. We're not going to ask if if there's like uh, if there was an effort to peacefully on sort of like business like terms convince people uh convince putin that uh democratic institutions and the rule of law are actually good to have and you'll be better off if you have them and here are the incentives uh we, yeah we would also be in a better place there's a related this thing is that- again not to remove any blame yeah. from either putin's shoulders or the russian people's shoulders or the russian politicians shoulders and you know there's a, a ton of blame to go around, but this is just a, a side point. There's a related thing. Uh, I think one thing Putin exploits is the fact that uh, 
you know, when he took over, Russia was in a very bad way economically. I think you 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 experienced the 1990s. I think most people in America don't understand things got really bad, right? Yeah. And and that was, uh, I think, blamed by a number of people on at least partly on the West. Like we came in, hey, we got this great system. Why didn't try capitalism? And of course, the transition was fraught with problems. And okay. you know, oligarchs, uh, people who were already inside the circles of power in Moscow, exploited the transition to amass economic power and oligarchs and so on. Um, there's a there's a distinction uh, that that is is very clear in the West and is not at all clear from the Russian perspective. Like there were American advisors within the Yeltsin's government who, or, or like advising the Yeltsin's government how to go with the transition. Mm -hmm. And for a Russian, this is like, wait, you're, you came in and you advised and, and we've gotten what we've gotten. And whenever you bring it up with an American, you always hear, you know, those were not like the state representatives. Those were individual people. There was a private, like economists you can hire to advise you. Right. This is not America doing this, but right. for post-Soviet Russia, this is America doing it. We've been closed off from the world. And then you got yeah. some Americans, supposedly experts in how markets work, uh, advising this. And it wouldn't surprise me if Bill Clinton suggested some economists. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say the U.S. government, you know, had a hands-off attitude. Uh, at, at this, you know, it's a very challenging problem for a, a country to uh, make a, an economic transition like that without this kind of thing happening. But in any event, uh, the West is blamed by many. Putin was seen as a kind of savior because after he became president, things started getting better. Uh, and uh, and anyway, one thing he, you know, exploits, I believe, is, is you know, there, there's just this idea that there was, you know, many kinds of politicians do this. There was a golden age where things were much better in this country. We were truer to our identity, this and that. And then this, these bad people spoiled it. And I think a lot of Americans don't realize the extent to which Russians are willing to believe the Americans were the bad people to begin with. And, and that is uh, part of the context in which, you know, Putin is elaborating the rest of the narrative about the current threat from the West and American hegemony and so on. Yeah. Um, so briefly, maybe... Uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to these conversations with you because things will evolve in Russia and it'll be good to check in every once in a while. Briefly, we should, I mean, as for this project, the, the Cognitive Empathy Project, you know, I'm writing a book about it. Uh, I just kind of said to newsletter readers, you know, we're going to be, I'm going to be trying this thing, which honestly, I'm I'm a little, uh, I find kind of scary of, of, of kind of trying to research and write a book and share a fair amount of that with readers, you know, a certain amount of it only with paid subscribers uh, in, in cases where it's uh, actually a written, what may be a written part of the book. That's, you know, partly to comply with the, the publisher's expectations, including contractual ones. Um, but uh, so I'm at the beginning of this and I don't really, I know some things we're going to try. I don't know how exactly it's going to, work out but uh i'm interested in your thoughts i mean you've already had some kind of wild ideas involving ai uh <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy for you and ai to write the book 
And <laughs> I honestly, I would like to uh, give a prompt to, uh, what is it, G GPT-3? Is that the essay writer? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. just write my damn book. That would be the prompt. Uh, no, it wouldn't be. That wouldn't be. But uh, something, you know, something about cognitive empathy. See what happens. It's worth trying it out and seeing what happens and then learning from what happens. I think th this is my current take on, on these systems is I'm not sure whether it's good or a bad thing or what and, and what uses it has. But I think we're right now in the in the stage of development of this thing where you you're you've gotten this toy and you can figure out whether it's good for something and you do it by experience you try it out you have like you have a project you know what you're working on and you can take you know a dozen of different angles in your first couple of sessions as to what this thing might be useful for um you know you write an argument and you say provide a counter argument to this and you see what it comes up to, or you uh, write, you, you feed it your introduction and you say, you know, write the table of contents or what is the book cover going to look like? Write an ad for this book, write, uh, provide the criticism that this book has gotten from, and then name a person and see what, what comes out. Just like, this is, I'm, I'm trying to think it right now as I speak. You can come up with things that might be useful in some way in the creative process. Mm -hmm. But I'm not, a, I'm not saying let the AI write the book. I'm, I'm totally game letting the AI write the book. I almost worry that if I give it a specific prompt, it'll do a sufficiently good job of like something that I could use you know, rewritten and rewritten form a few paragraphs of that I'll be like, whoa, is this, am I plagiarizing an AI? Is this, you know, I don't know. But uh, we'll see. The, the There's a related thing that I won't elaborate on because uh, we've been, you know, we're running kind of overtime. But you, uh, by way of illustrating the way it responds to prompts, you sent me an essay you had had the AI generate. The prompt was like, Putin isn't real or something? What was it? Yeah, I've done, this is, the idea is not mine. It's kind of like in the Russian folk mythology, there are different versions of the idea that Putin does not exist. It's uh -huh. like he might be a team of lookalikes or a team of androids or a mass hallucination or, you know, a bunch of different options. But the premise is Putin does not exist. And when I first got my hands on this GPT-3 thing, I gave it a bunch of different prompts. I asked it to write a horror movie based on this premise, uh, an action movie based on this premise, uh, a political program of, I guess, like a, 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 an oppositional movement uh, based on the premise that Putin does not exist. And uh, I think I've sent you that last one, the, the political program, did I not? Uh, I didn't know that I got the political program, but the, 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 the you sent me one essay, those a response, to the prompt, uh, and a thought I had about that was related to cognitive empathy was, I think you could make the case that as good as the AI is getting at generating essays and art, um, what it still lacks is cognitive empathy. Because there was, to the extent that I had a critique of that essay, I won't get into detail, 
uh, it would be, I mean, first of all, it's, it's my view that, you know, better cognitive empathy can solve a lot of problems and make a lot of things better. And one of them is just writing. Often, if you see bad writing, the problem is and web they interfaces. What's that? Web interfaces. I've heard you complain about the yeah, interfaces totally. of the episode. Totally. Just use. people designing yeah. interfaces and not putting themselves in the shoes of the people who are going to be using them and going like, wait, suppose you weren't this genius software engineer, but were just this like schlub, you know? Uh, yeah, it would be different. Um, and and uh, um, wait, I got to uh, plug in my my computer just a second um and uh but anyway in the case of writing there's often a failure to really say like okay look, i i need to have a conception as hard it's impossible to ever say yeah this is the um the, the, there is a, a kind of you know there's no there's no average reader your readers are always a bunch of different people but right um there's value in having this uh, this this kind of uh, conception of a reader, and I would argue that that essay, uh, in that essay, the author of that essay, the AI, did not have that, and that and that and uh, as a result, there was some kind of ambiguity that that was not optimal. But anyway, that's uh, it's an interesting question: Can AIs do AIs uh, have uh, cognitive empathy? Um, Not by default, but you can add that into the prompt, right? I could, whatever the prompt was, I could add to it, you know, write it in a way that would appeal to a rural American in the 21st century. And I don't know if it would do a great job, but it's within the range of possibilities. It's You, you can find that out. Right, right. Um, and they would get better with time. Yeah. No, that probably will be. And... Uh... So anyway, um, I don't know what else uh, I am going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, sufficiently worried about this whole project that I am going to be asking you for other ideas. Uh, and and um, I don't know if there are any thoughts, any other thoughts you have now. Go ahead. Honestly, just the last couple of days, I've been in a mood where I'm, I, I don't feel like I have ideas. I feel like I just have bad feelings about the world and this whole human incarnation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm, I'm going to need to assemble myself and, and channel this into a creative yeah. way. So right now on the spot, I don't think I have something to contribute. Well, as I said, wisdom is coming to you earlier than it came <laughs> to me. Uh, the, uh, so anyway, so thanks. Um, We'll be back, I don't know, a month or so down the road. Um, and uh, meanwhile, there's your newsletter, Psychopolitica. Psychopolitica, yeah, at Substack, spelled with a C. There is a paid not, not version. Not a K, which, which was always my recommendation. Yeah, you know, but, but. It, it, it was a consideration. There is a paid version, and all the money from the paid version goes to buy humanitarian aid for Ukraine. So that's something uh we could do uh yep okay yeah and and i i don't think i've said explicitly that you're you know you're 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 both a writer you write you write things in the newsletter but also you're an artist and you do creative things visually uh and you're fooling around with that part of ai as well 
Um, and, and I have collaborations with other artists. Right, um, right. There's a lot of stuff happening. You just yeah. had one on a, one of them on a podcast, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, keep it up. Uh, and uh, congratulations on marriage and Thank getting you. out of Russia. Thank you. And, and we'll see you down the road. Thank you.